Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Ruby Rogues. I almost said JavaScript Jabber. That's been a long week. Uh, today, uh, I'm here with Zach Schroeder. Zach, do you want to say hi? Hello. Hello, everyone. Sorry, I'm kind of in the dark right here, but I just don't have a good operating setup for uh, lighting my face. I don't think anyone's missing out, though. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, so we're just gonna we're just gonna chat here for the next um, hour, I think. Uh, you you had some things that you brought up that I thought were interesting topics that I don't know that we've really gone into depth with uh, or depth on in in the show. And um, so yeah, so we'll just kind of move through some of these topics. I think some of these are things that people are talking about these days anyway. And so you know we can just kind of have that conversation. Um, we're like what three days out from New Year's or something like that. So anyway, uh, one of the things you brought up is kind of the trends in front end and JavaScript, and I'm curious what you're seeing. I mean, I get a little bit of a different view on that just because I'm doing the JavaScript Jabber podcast. And I'm talking to people over there about all kinds of things, but yeah, I'm, I'm curious what you're seeing from where you're working and stuff these days sure absolutely yeah um so honestly in a lot of my uh personal projects and stuff i've kind of like regressed uh to just doing as as pure of regular javascript as i can only mm -hmm. because um and i imagine that other people feel this way too um i find it so hard to stay on top of uh the latest sort of javascript technologies frameworks you know that kind of stuff um Recently, I did, there's a, a guy who makes, I wish I could remember his name now, videos on YouTube kind of covering like, well, what I would do, you know, if I was making a modern stack JavaScript app in 2022, uh -huh. kind of, and, you know, it's a little tongue in cheek, but you can end up pulling in, you know, four or five, six libraries, frameworks, things for doing different kind of stuff. And, um, you know, what, uh, what I guess my question for you and for, you know, other people out there is like, uh, one, how do you stay on top of um, all the new stuff coming out? Do you just find something you like and stick with it? It seems like there's always a little niche where one framework will do something slightly better than another. Right. Um, and then on the other side of that, do you end up kind of with like a little bit of exhaustion as far as trying to stay on top of all this where, you know, you end up kind of like, I uh, just, uh, oh, that's great. You know, something new came out of, you know, exciting like that kind of stuff, you know? Right. So, um, I, I have two answers to this, you, you know, just kind of from different points of view. Uh, one of them is that at least on my end, um, I'm trying new things cause I'm constantly looking for things to have on the shows or to prepare for a show when we get somebody on. Um, one thing that's been really interesting lately with the front end in particular though, is that what you're talking about kind of moving away from the big monolithic frameworks and into some of these areas where you can kind of tightly control what your JavaScript does. I'm seeing a lot more people move in that direction. Um, most recently, we had uh, Mishko Hevery. Um, and if you know who he is, he's the guy that created Angular. Okay. Um, but he's moved on. He's working for a company called Builder now, and he's building a new framework called Quick. And so Quick is all about, um, you know, putting JavaScript where you need it. Um, you know, it, it solves a lot of the problems that 
he said were just impossible to solve with Angular in its current state. Um, and so, yeah, you add you add the JavaScript where you need it. Um, you can if you it it works for server side rendering, but you know you can you know resume the JavaScript or execute the JavaScript on the client when it comes up. Um, it doesn't do any hydration step. Um, you know, and so it is relatively simple. The one that we've talked about most on the show is stimulus, which is kind of in the same vein, right? Where you just create a controller uh, class in JavaScript, and then you wrap whatever elements you want, and then you give it behaviors, right? Mm -hmm. You tell it, if you click this, do this. If you, you know, do these other things on it, do this, right? And then um, you can set targets so that when, when you do something, it does something on the target, right? Right. Or pulls a value off the, the the value. So anyway, so I'm seeing a lot of people move that way. Um, what I found is that some folks they really do want kind of the application level experience in their app, and that's where they're reaching for Angular, React, or Vue. And then yeah, you have people that are coming more into the area of hey look, I just kind of need some basic you know click animate functionality here, and so. Um, you know, I'm going to have it do this, right? And maybe do some Ajax or, you know, mm -hmm. pull in Turbo or Turbo Links, as it used to be called, right? So you pull in some of that other stuff and make it all work. And yeah. so I'm seeing a lot more people come at it that way and, sort and of a use those. approach, yeah. Yeah. Um, what DHH calls JavaScript sprinkles. Right. Well, yeah, and, it's funny that you mentioned stimulus because I just pulled up, um, <laughs> not exactly the same, but I just pulled up. I had been wanting to try Hotwire. Uh, which mm -hmm. I think you can build into the same suite. I haven't yet, but uh, it's, it's a, that was a funny synchronicity. Um, so I was wondering, so the creator of Angular, did he did he just feel like, what, maybe it got too big or did did another company take over management? Um, I find that it like, sort of maybe has an interesting story under it. Yeah, I don't know that we really got into that story. He, I think he was just interested in kind of creating the uh, this new way of doing things on the web. Mm -hmm. And yeah, like the the way that they avoid hydration and the way that they push work to the to worker threads and stuff like that in there. Some of those things were just exceptionally difficult, if not impossible to put in Angular as it stood. And he kind of saw the writing on the wall as people are going to want these features in the next version of whatever they're using. And so he left. That was the impression I got. I may have that wrong, but that was the impression I got with that. And we're kind of seeing that push with, like I said, some of these other ones. Uh, we recently on JavaScript Jabber had uh, Fred Scott, who built Astro, which is another one of these lightweight frameworks, right? Just gives you kind of the bare bones stuff that you want. Um, and yeah, so it kind of it kind of feels a little bit like going back to where things were with like jQuery, right? Where it was just, Hey, these, you have these kinds of interactions you can put together on elements and, and mm -hmm. stuff like that. Um, you know, maybe in a different architecture and without, cause jQuery was monolithic too, let's face it, yeah. but it didn't, it didn't necessarily have to take over your entire front end, like angular and Vue and react tend to do. And right. so, that that's kind of the difference. And so people are looking at it and going, I can have this tiny bit of functionality and I can maintain it as a tiny bit of functionality and I don't have to create this massive 
uh, set of functionality and features to manage the whole dang page and to manage some kind of uh, global front end data store thing that I have to go and, and, you know, make sure that it's all in the right state at the right time, that everything reacts to it the right way. Right, exactly. Um, But but yeah, if you're building the full application experience and you've got multiple targets to update and stuff like that, you know, maybe there, there is a right place for that, right? I'm not saying there's not, but for most of the stuff that I'm building, yeah, it's like, oh, I need this to just act a little different. Excuse me. So one of the examples is on uh, top end devs. Um, if you purchase something from us, like you purchase a course or a conference ticket, um, both of those go into a, a purchable purchase class and it has a polymorphic relationship to whatever you bought, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, the idea being, if if I want to assign you a purchase, right? So something goes wrong and I need to manually add your purchase in, you know, I select what type it is, course or conference, and then it will go and do an, an end run to the server and say, what are all the courses and bring those in and set up the next select box so I can select the right thing. Right. And so, you know, it's a tiny bit of functionality. I don't need anything fancy and I don't need it managing the entire page. Yeah. Yeah. The weight of the the framework and this applies and to, you know, Ruby frameworks for web stuff and for gems and everything. It's like um, you get to a point where it's like, okay, this has some functionality I want, but it's also going to bring in all this extra stuff that I don't need. And, mm-hmm. you know, could I find this, the same functionality or roll it myself without, you know, bringing right. that in. So um, yeah, JavaScript frameworks, Ruby stuff. Um, uh, you know, that's kind of how I tend to think about it too. Um, I actually really haven't, been keeping up. I mentioned that, um, you know, when I've been doing web apps recently, I just use Sinatra, um, for the backend, um, still, still works really well. Uh, you know, and it tends to follow my, my thought process, which is just spinning up mm-hmm. a lot of quick little, um, you know, access points and stuff like that. I really haven't kept up, um, in the last couple of years now that I'm not doing it for work with, with rails, um, mm-hmm. you know, I just pulled up the website and it seems like there's still full steam ahead. Last release was in oh, September. Yeah. Um, I was wondering, you know, I, not that you can say that much about like language usage and framework usage and stuff like that, but, um, you know, it makes me wonder if Rails is still sort of like maintaining the, uh, the market dominance that they held, you know, in terms of, uh, large scale, uh, Ruby based, uh, applications. Mm-hmm. I think I think yes and no. Um, and this is a conversation that I have just about Ruby usage in general with a lot of people because they're like, well, looking at Ruby like the market share isn't, you know, it's shrinking, right? Mm-hmm. Well, realistically, though, there are more people coming into dev than ever before. And so as far as, you know, adoption and stuff like that, Ruby's holding its own. It's just, you know, you, you have a lot more people coming in through boot camps and, and other places that are teaching them other languages like Python or JavaScript. And so um, it's, it, yeah, it, it's the same with Rails, I feel. Um, I've been talking to a lot of people lately who have been moving over toward Hanami. Um, I haven't heard of that. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit different framework. Um, it's, uh, let's see, it's, it's a little bit better or more widely used in like European markets, not in the U S. Okay. 
And uh, it's it's really interesting. One thing I, I want to do, because I have to admit, I have looked at it. I have not used it. <clears throat> We've done some shows on it. And what I want to do is, um, and they just barely released Hanami 2, which solved a whole bunch of, um, I wouldn't say there were like problems so much as just uh, things that were inconsistent or things that were harder to use. They made them easier to use. I think it got a pretty healthy performance boost. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's pretty awesome. Um, but yeah, if, if I'm hearing about any framework out there more, uh, as much as rails, it's Hanami. Nice. Um, and yeah, there I'm trying to remember. So there they use ROM for their CRM. And so it's a little bit more kind of functional, um, set up than like, uh, rails, which is. You know, you do it through inheritance and you have all that other stuff going. So mm-hmm. um, anyway, but Rails is, is definitely holding its own. The The difference I, I feel, at least between like Rails and something like Sinatra, is that Rails kind of has ready-made places for most of your code to go. And, it, you know, in my in my case, you know, it, it runs fast enough. Right. Um, but recently I've been reading uh, Clean Architecture by Uncle Bob. Okay. And mm-hmm. he, uh, the chapters we just covered, we're, I'm actually doing a book club. You can go join the book club at topendevs.com slash book club. Nice. Um, we're about halfway through the book. And we, anyway, so the latest uh, chapter he talked about deferring as many decisions as possible. Mm-hmm. And so just kind of thinking about that and how that all works. That's one thing I really like about something like Sinatra, right? Is that you you kind of start with bare bones or Rhoda is the other one that I really like that's kind of the the really low level, you know, hey, this this serves web stuff, right? Okay. Um <clears throat> and so I, I really dig that in the sense that I can defer decisions. I, I don't have to pick a database, I don't have to pick, you know, mm-hmm. I don't have to pick an ORM, I don't have to pick nothing, right? I can just serve pages. Yeah. And so then if I wanted to build something on top of Sinatra, like the example they used was uh, Bob and his son, Micah, who's also a cool guy. Um, they use, um, they built a wiki, right? That was built on top of uh, Fit, which was built by Ward Cunningham, I think. Anyway, um, so Fit was this uh, testing thing and they built this wiki on top of it that you could build put your test cases in, which is really cool. It's called fitness. Um, but the, the first thing they did is they built the, um, the rendering engine that translated their wiki markup to, um, HTML. Right. And so they didn't have to solve any of the other issues. Right. And so if I was going to put something like that into an app, I could just drop it on Sinatra and say, serve the HTML. Right. Mm -hmm. And then, and then I can pick the database when I get around to persistence, or I can pick a JavaScript, you know, front end tool or framework when I get around to, hey, I want these features in it that need it. And okay. and I'm really liking that approach to architecture. Rails makes a lot of those decisions for you up front. Mm-hmm. Um, the flip side is, is if you're comfortable with the framework and you don't want to ever have to make those decisions, it's a nice tool to use. So. Yeah. But yeah, as, as far as the market goes, 
Um, I think Rails is still the dominant way to build web apps in Ruby. Um, you know, I, I see stuff in, like I said, typically it's Hanami, but Hanami is still pretty heavy-handed as opposed to something like a Sinatra. Right. So, and I see people spin stuff up on a Sinatra or um, other rack-based system fairly frequently when they know they just want something small, fast, and internal. Mm-hmm. They don't have to worry about any, you know, hot shot from the internet coming in and messing with. So, right, exactly. Well, yeah, and it, in terms of uh, it, um, sort of a uh, a bad pull, but the recruiter emails and stuff that I get seems like a lot of big companies are still. Uh, holding on to their rails apps um mm-hmm. i get a lot of those um if they're but, well put together they're pretty easy to maintain the problem that i see most of those companies run into is they run 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 and then they get to the point where all of their decisions have added up to a huge amount of weight that you have to deal with as you add more features yeah and so if they're making good yeah. decisions and giving people opportunities to remove tech debt as they go then they tend to do okay yeah, I, w- I won't mention the company, but um, the one of my first jobs out of school was on a, a very large monolithic Ruby on Rails mm-hmm. app, and it was very much like that. You know, you're following, you know, hundreds hundreds of uh, lines through the stack trace, trying to figure out right. which version of this thing has, uh-huh. you know, has the monkey patch yep. in it or whatever. So, yep. Oh yeah, and that's always fun too, is they monkey patch something, and then you're really just going. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this isn't the string class that yeah. I thought I had, right? <laughs> Just like standing up and screaming, "Who changed string?" You know, trying yeah. to <laughs> please don't do that, people. Please, please don't do that. <laughs> the uh, you know, the, I actually did find a um, a reason again, personal project. No one else was looking at it, but a reason to do that recently, and I forget what it was, but I put something into string. Um, anyway, I still find Ruby to be like the most enjoyable language to write. I've dabbled in Python mostly for microcontroller stuff, Raspberry mm-hmm. Pi, et cetera. Um, but whenever I'm starting up anything and I'm a habitual project starter and like an right. almost never project finisher, you know, I always just jump to Ruby cause it's so comfortable and, um, you know, succinct and, uh, even though mostly what I'm doing is, well, except for that, that little gem I made, I ended up doing quite a, you know, it's. Hundred percent, just pure Ruby. Um, down to um, basically, you know, when you're generating sound, um, you're you have a sample rate. You're plugging in just a float or an integer for each individual sample. Um, so you can write your sine wave function in Ruby. Plug in your 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 samples into a just basically like a giant array and export it. And I use that little wave file gem. And um, that was really fun because I didn't have to worry about JavaScript or deploying to the web or anything like that. It's just right. like, oh, just get to change some Ruby here. Um, and actually, honestly, that was uh, my favorite project I've ever done because one, I basically sort of like finished the first version of it. Mm-hmm. And two, is the first project I've ever done where someone actually commented on it, brought up an issue and uh, helped me fix an issue um and uh that was a really cool feeling i you know outside of work i've I've never really done that with anyone so yeah i hear that i i see i mean some of the other advantages i see to rails are that they have the front end build systems right so you've got sprockets or import maps or webpacker kind of built in Mm -hmm. and that handles a lot for you and it does a lot of the best practice stuff that gets your performance 
right. you know, get your bundle size down and stuff like that. But I'm also not convinced that I always need that. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Well, I've had this conversation. And sometimes it's complicated setting before, it up. Yeah. yeah. Where it's like, you know, uh, always be wary of like pre-optimization, which if you know what right. you're doing, especially with like Webpack and stuff, um, I'm, you know, I don't want to um, be negative, but I just Webpack and I have never gotten along, uh, never found yeah. like a nice flow with that. But, um, you know, and, and talking to friends while working on stuff and being like, well, you know, is this going to be fast or slow? And then ultimately thinking like, well, it doesn't really matter, does it? Because yeah. you're not even close to the stage where you have to worry about whether it's fast or, you know, too slow yep. or anything like that. Yeah, absolutely. But regardless, but, yeah, I mean, whether yeah. you, you know, um, start projects or actually finish projects or whatever, I'm always a big proponent of, um, you know, just doing something, especially for coders, like outside of work, even if it's just solving, what do they call those? So it's like Euler problems using a new language yeah. or something or because it's kind of hard to come up with ideas, you know, because for me, it's always like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if there was a, oh, you know, that already exists. OK, uh, et cetera. Yeah. But, um, whenever I, I talk to people about coding or, um, you know, like I've spoken at RubyConf a couple of times, it's like regardless of what you think of this thing I'm presenting, it's like I highly encourage people just do something, you know, find something interesting um, cause it can, it can be really easy if you're, especially if you're working and coding, uh, to get kind of like, uh, numb to it, a little burnt out maybe. Um, so whether you're, you're finishing things or not, I, I always encourage people just like, you know, try to have a little project going on the side that you can get excited about and look yep. forward to. Yeah. That's one of the things that I recommend to people as well. And I've been getting into coaching and things like that quite a bit. Um, get some of this on top end devs membership. Um, but yeah, be learning something new every day and be committing code every day. And I highly recommend people when they're committing code every day is to pick up some side project and go with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing is with that side project, and you've kind of alluded to this, it sounds like you kind of have multiple side projects going, you kind of move from one thing to the other to the other, is uh, a lot of times people will go, okay, well, you know, I'm going to go, you know, they get on Google and they look up what's a good side project, right? And it's like, build a budget app or build a Twitter clone. Mm-hmm. And people get into it and then they're just like, eh, here's, it's just not exciting, Boring. right? Yeah. Go do something that's exciting, right? I mean, what else do you want? You know, do you want a website where you can post your drone footage, flying it around your neighborhood, right? Do you want a website where you can post a portfolio of pictures of your kids? Do you want... You know, maybe you are this uh, financial guru, right? So build something that tracks the stock market, right? Do something really interesting, right? I mean, if the Twitter clone is just like, I am going to show Mastodon how it ought to be done, fine, go for it, right? But at the end of the day, um, you know, go find that project that lights you up. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, that's kind of uh, um, point to be of of uh, the top end devs method is have a side project. The other thing is, is that it really shows up well on your resume. If you have a, a semi-complex, well-maintained side project that can show people how you work and what you can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And being able to talk through it, design decisions, yeah. coding decisions, that kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. What do you know about X? Well, in my side project, I was trying to solve this problem 
And I tried these three different ways and it turned out what you talked about was the right way to do it. And here's why. Here are the trade-offs. Here's why I made the decisions. Here's my experience with it. That goes over way better than, well, I can cite you chapter and verse of what's on Wikipedia explaining what the algorithm means. Exactly. Yeah. Well, and and another big thing with that is that, um, you know, even if you work in Ruby, you work in Rails, um, I think a lot of business decisions end up, at least I've seen in my career, um, end up being the same kind of work over and over Uh again. Um, and you know, it's easy to become an expert on like shifting a button around or, you know, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing, or, okay, I have to do a migration in order to add this, this line to the database or whatever, but being able to really like explore a language or explore different ways of thinking, um, is always good. Uh, yeah, I agree. And, and like you said, I mean, it's not just shifting a button around, but I mean, what I find is like 90% of the work that I'm doing in Rails is CRUD. Mm-hmm. It really is, right? And yeah. and I kind of include like validations and stuff in there, right? Mm-hmm. And and the database migrations and crap. The rest of it, it, you know, that's the interesting stuff where it's like, hey, we don't even know how to do this. Or, hey, we're going to go pick up a gem that you've never worked with before, right? And so I have to go explore. That's the fun part for me. Mm-hmm. And so I like I'm working a contract now and we've been working on these uh, API integrations and, you know, it was interesting for about a month. Mm-hmm. And then once I kind of had that together and now it's just, OK, I just have to figure out how to map these fields to those fields. You know, it's it's boring. You know, okay. I'm, I'm bored. And yeah, so um, having something to work on where you can go explore this stuff is like, hey, I'm going to go build this. And I'm going to build it in NAMI or I'm right. going to go build this and I'm going to build it. I'm going to go completely off the rails and go build it and go right or or rust or whatever right mm-hmm. um now if it's something that you're gonna so this is always the double-edged sword for me is that a lot of times i'll build a side project and then i'll start thinking about how to actually launch it and monetize it and run it as a business and so if i'm in a whole bunch of different technologies that starts to become painful but mm-hmm. you know for your first or second side project i mean you know, go for it. I, I was coaching a guy the other day and he's been doing front end in Angular. And before that, he was doing Vue.js. And um, he's like, I really want to get into Rust. I think it was Rust. It might have been Go. I was like, then start a Go project, right? Mm-hmm. He's like, well, I'm not really an expert. And, you know, and started expressing in some imposter syndrome. I said, dude, it's just to learn on, right? Yeah. And, and go try, you know, when they tell you, whatever you do, don't do this. I said, try it, figure out why they're telling you don't, don't, you know, bad Uh idea. Right. Yeah. Because you'll learn something. And then from there, now you've got this thing where you can show people. And so if your next job really is going to be go on the back end and angular or view on the front end, you can go in and you can say, well, I've been working in angular for the last four years and now I can, you know, and here's my go project. Right. It, they will care a whole lot less that you haven't been doing go at work. Yeah. Especially if the passion is there. Yeah. And you've yeah. sort of like developed the skills. Um, that was one thing I was appreciated about the Ruby community and, um, you know, just how um, kind of like open and, and welcoming it's intended to be. I mean, not saying right. it's the same everywhere all the time, but all the way, you know, up to, to mats and down. Mm-hmm. Um Whereas some of these other languages, especially ones that run, and I don't mean to start controversy, run more tangential to like Linux sort of stuff, you know, or that same yeah. kind of community, it 
it, it can be really tough when you don't know what you're doing to go to a forum, ask mm-hmm. a question. Here I am talking about forums. What year is it? The, you know, jump onto <laughs> <laughs> whatever, Twitter, um, ask yeah. a question and uh, be like, well, if you don't know this, you need to go back and read, read the manual again or whatever. Um, I always appreciated yeah. about the Ruby community that it seemed like it was generally uh, very, very open and, and um, uh, welcoming to, to people of all. Right. you know, skill levels and backgrounds and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, the only, the only exception I've seen to any of that is that I have seen some people basically be ostracized from parts of the community. And mm-hmm. it's happened a lot less in Ruby. I've seen it much more in some of the other communities I'm involved in uh, because of their political points of view. Uh, and yeah. it's just because of the way that people are um, acting around that stuff these days. And to be honest, I still don't understand it. I wish that we we could all just be like, hey, look, we're a technical community. If you're bringing something with merit, you know, we'll hear it out. Mm-hmm. And if you're not, then we'll point it out, right? Well, and, yeah. and then we'll work through it. And if you need help getting where wherever you want to go with your career or your learning journey or anything else, then let's help you. Yeah, totally. I totally agree with that. And sometimes you kind of wonder how, you know, um, those, those kinds of conversations start in the first place. Right. Um, uh, but then, yeah, you do wish that, that, um, you could kind of just leave that aside, especially because, um, it what I found no is, especially going, do. well, exactly, you know, and going to RubyConf and stuff like that, you strike up, you know, I, I don't ask people <laughs> about their political beliefs or anything like that. You're just making friends, nope. you're talking about programming, that kind of thing. But there's a disconnect where it's like, on the internet, especially, you know, mm-hmm. where people collect, like on Twitter, it's like, I have to make statements, I have to be, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, that kind of stuff. I have right. to have good takes to post and stuff like that, um, even in yeah. the programming realms. And it does, um, to me as well, seem unnecessary. And uh, it's unfortunate, you know, when people have to either, you know, leave a community or kind of get forced out mm-hmm. um, just for, for silly reasons. So we've kind of talked our way over to social media. Mm-hmm. And I think this is an interesting area to get into. Now, I don't really want to comment too much on Elon Musk because I think some of the stuff he's <laughs> done has been fine and some of the stuff he's done has been stupid. Mm-hmm. But um, it's been really interesting just to see how many people, for whatever reason, have moved off of Twitter and onto Mastodon. And then it's also been interesting to me, and I'm saying this a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but it really I'm seeing a lot of people doing it is I've seen the people saying they're leaving Twitter and then don't, and they go to Mastodon. And so they're doing both. <laughs> right. Um, Cross-posting uh, and stuff, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about setting up a, a Mastodon server for top-end devs for a while, and I finally just did it. They, there's an image you can pull on DigitalOcean, and you just deploy it as a droplet, and it runs your Mastodon for you. Uh, I need to figure out how to upgrade it, though, because the version I got was Mastodon 3.6, I think, and they're on 4.0 plus Mm -hmm. now. So I'd like to upgrade it. But yeah, I'll I'll be honest. I know so little about Mastodon and and the recent hubbub has not um, uh, sparked me to like do any research into it or anything. My understanding is, is that, um, um, you know, there are individual communities that sort of like operate what their own server or their own instance of this thing. And then the instances can talk to each other. Yeah, they federate. You can block other instances, right? So if somebody decides they don't like people, you know, or the administrators on your server, 
mm-hmm. they they can block those servers and they won't you know they they won't show up on that server right because right. I still load Mastodon off of my own server and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But to be perfectly honest, most people just turn it on and let it fly. And so all you really have to know is which server do I want to be on, right? right? You have to like pick a and, home or whatever. Yeah, basically. And then and then you can post from there. Um, some of them are somewhat topical. So there's like a webperf.social and a, a ruby.social and stuff okay. like that. Uh-huh. And so the nice thing about that setup is that like on a ruby.social, you would imagine most of the posts are going to be Ruby related. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't think they enforce that. Right. Right. Because the admins could, they could enforce it and kick you off for not for posting non-Ruby stuff. Mm-hmm. But I haven't seen any Mastodon instances doing that kind of thing. I've seen Mastodon instances that got popular and had to kick people for abusive behavior, but that's different. Right. Um, but it's funny the names. It, it's sort of like almost a, a callback to like IRC stuff, right? Having yeah, you know, your news channel name and stuff like that. Yeah. So yeah, so but then you can look at the local posts. Is what I was driving at. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you can look at federated posts, which is the whole internet, or you can look at local posts. Got it. And so, um, you know, if your local posts are all topical to whatever the server's about, then you're likely to get a lot of good stuff on that. So. Mm-hmm. You know, for for that, I don't know how actively that really pans out on Ruby.social. Yeah. You know, topendevs.social, I'm planning on adding accounts for each of our shows and then having those populate, you know, off of the RSS feeds and other stuff. Right. But, and it almost yeah. like um, that brings up an interesting, well, at least in my mind, I'm thinking right now. So let's say, you know, you, you have a DigitalOcean instance or you're running your own mm-hmm. server or whatever. Um, it's almost like trying to take, you know, the big thing with Twitter is like, how are they going to make money? You know, there's, uh, you know, they're losing mm-hmm. all this money. Are they going to start charging for this and that and the other thing? I guess one way to address having a large scale service that is not monolithic is defraying the cost to people who can afford it. So, you right. know, if you if you're running your instance and paying a hundred bucks a year or whatever, you know, that's a certain number of users that that are accessing it through you, basically. Mm-hmm. Um which is interesting. I've, I've kind of wondered about that in terms of, you know, I mean, what company, yeah. what company, especially social media company makes money off of their social media, it's, uh, you know, or whatever. I was always told like, well, if you're not paying for it, then you're the product kind of thing. Right. And to a certain extent, that's true. I mean, Facebook, Facebook makes money. They're profitable off of Facebook ads and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's because companies can make a fair bit of money by advertising products you want to you. Right. And so, um, yeah, that, that works out. One, one thing that's interesting though, about specifically the Twitter slash Mastodon debate is, um, so one of the things that Elon Musk has been doing is, is he's been dropping documents from internal Twitter about Mm -hmm. some of the, um, censor censoring and stuff that they were doing. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, to the extent that it was just Twitter or Twitter employees doing it, I mean, I don't like it, but, you know, that was completely within the purview of Twitter's right to do what they want. Mm-hmm. Um, but there have, there's been a good amount of evidence come out that the government was actually coercing Twitter, right? They were actually directing Twitter on some of the people that they censored and some of the topics that they censored. Uh-huh. And that's, that's deeply concerning, right? 
And yeah. so, well, you know, we, you were, know, we were always told that that wasn't happening and wasn't supposed right. to happen. Right? And it turns out that it was happening and that it can, it, I, I don't think it's continued to happen because I think Twitter for the most part, you know, has quit doing some of that stuff. I think to a certain extent they have to do some censorship, right? We're not going to let kid porn on here anymore, which was another big, you know, tranche of files. They, you know, mm-hmm. stuff like that, you know, the, I mean, there was some pretty nasty stuff going on there, but, um, if you decentralize it, then if the people who run the server that I'm on decide they don't like my political leanings or the types of things that I am saying, right, Mm -hmm. they, they object morally to it or whatever, and they remove me. The nice thing is, is that I I can then go find another home. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm, you know, and I'm not posting anything that's abusive or whatever. Right. And so if they just decide they don't like me for whatever reason, right, um, they don't like the way I look or the way I talk or anything, right, they, they can kick me off because they own the server and that's that's totally within their rights. Mm-hmm. But then I can go and I can start my own or run my own or be in my own spot and it'll federate everywhere. And then, yeah, the people who don't want to get my stuff can just block me. Right. And so I'm not I'm not left out in the cold uh, you know, due to political or other uh, things coming in. And government actors have to go now and play on every server in order to get viewpoint censored as opposed to um, this other stuff. But I, we've kind of gone on a tangent a little bit. I think the main discussion as far as the Ruby community goes is that we're kind of in this weird place where a lot of stuff is still on Twitter, but not everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it's, okay, how do I you know, how do I use social media the way that I've used it in the past to connect with people and to get help? Yeah. You know, what's funny about that is that I've never, and this is, um, you know, I'm, I'm not that old, but um, sort of like growing up. You look this, like you're younger than me. <laughs> uh, so I turned 34 this year. Um, so I, w- I was using the internet in the 90s uh, before, you know, late 90s before, mm-hmm. Uh, social media sort of existed. And I, I just feel like I've never gotten a hang of it. Even when trying to talk to people who share common interests, Rubyists or, you know, anything like that, I just never, it always felt to me like I was just talking to myself, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, well, I can do that. I do that all the time without posting it on the internet. Um, maybe I need to take some like classes on how to engage, but, uh, you know, with people. It depends on what you want. I feel so like my I've experience, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you said you turned thirty-four. Uh-huh. So I turned forty-three a couple weeks ago. Okay. And... Well, you don't look it. I would have <laughs> guessed we'd be like right or right in that same zone. No, I'm forty-three. Um, so, uh, but my deal is, so I've been involved in podcasting since two thousand eight, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, social media is one of the ways that we get the word out about things and and operate. So. For us, it's more of a megaphone and less of a way to connect. Mm-hmm. Um, and social media tends to work fairly well that way. Um, the The problem that I have connecting, like actually connecting with people over social media, is that um, it's not real time, and it's really hard to get a read on mm-hmm. on where people are at. Right. So, um, like if you go look at their timeline. And it's all, you know, I hate, you know, pick your person, Trump, Biden, sure. right? It's all, uh, I hate that guy, right? Uh-huh. Um, then what you're going to, you know, you can kind of get a read on, hey, you know, uh, 
if if they're talking positively about the guy that they say they hate all the time, it's probably sarcasm, right? Mm-hmm. But I mean, beyond that, it's just really hard to know. And then to get really deep or personal conversations, which is where I want to be, right? Is mm-hmm. you know, where are you at? What do you what are you about? What do you care about? How can I help you out? Those happen much more naturally if I'm actually on a call, right? Mm-hmm. And I've thought about setting up like a Twitter, what are they, Twitter spaces? Spaces, yeah. Where, where you start like a video call and people can basically call in. Like mm-hmm. I would do that. That, that. That's helpful. But the rest of those conversations, what I find is that a lot of times I just want, I wind up in a misunderstanding with somebody and then I have to clear the air on a call anyway, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, you meant that. Oh, well, I meant this. Oh, okay. Right. So what we care about is this thing that it turns out we didn't even realize the other was talking about. Mm-hmm. And so social media is great for just putting thoughts out there, seeing how people react, um, you know, letting people know about things that they ought to know about, like events or podcast episodes or stuff like that. Not great for those personal connections. And so that's why I invite people, hey, come get on a coaching call with me. You just have to fill out the coaching application on Top End Devs, right? And you get a free call. You get a free coaching call. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, or things like that. Or, you know, I'm, I'm trying to figure out and just set a time every week or two times or three times every week where I do Twitter space and just bring people in and talk to them because that's where I feel like that connection is. And so to the extent that you can get... Um, that kind of feedback and that kind of uh, positive um, interaction, that's where I feel like the real power is. And then the next best thing is kind of the Instagram reels, the TikToks, the, um, you know, things like that, where you effectively post a video where you go into more depth, right? Mm -hmm. Because I'm sorry, I'm not the guy that types an essay into Facebook. I just, I don't. Right. Yeah. Right. And so, um, occasionally I'll respond to something and I'll give a longer response. But if you get, if you see more than two of those on my Facebook timeline in a year, it's, it's, it's pretty rare. So, but I can, you know, I can sit in front of a video in front of a camera and I can talk about it. And so Mm -hmm. that's where I feel like the real power in the social media is, is, Hey, let me show you how to do a thing. Right. So I do a tutorial video or, Hey, let me talk through this issue that I see on people's resume. Right. And so, I can give you a hint about something that may be keeping you from getting interviews or, you know, stuff like that, that, that stuff I'm perfectly good doing, but yeah, otherwise I'm just posting memes cause I think they're funny. Yeah. And I mostly do that on Facebook because I have more people just kind of let it float by mm-hmm. if they don't agree with it. Cause some of them are political. Let's face mm-hmm. it. I think they're funny. And so I post them, but yeah. Then people react and I ignore them. Yeah. That's the biggest thing, right? Cause it, and you feel like you need to respond to the response and cause sometimes not anymore. Set down. It doesn't house. do any good. <laughs> they yeah. get mad. I respond. They get mad again. I respond. Nobody's minds change. They just hate mm-hmm. me now. What's the point? Well, exactly. Yeah. And it's sort of the same thing with like, uh, I mean, I've never used TikTok. I'm scared of it. Um, I don't think I ever will. Uh, it just seems like one of those things where I find it hard enough. YouTube managed to hook me in a couple of times, like showing me streams of their like mm-hmm. shorts or whatever. And it's like, right. I, I cannot be trusted with something like this. I, you know, yeah. lose so much time and 
Um, yeah, and see, my approach to it is, and I'm just getting into it now, right? Um, you know, I've I we have social media accounts where we post like images with links to the episodes and stuff, but I'm just getting into it now where I'm going to start putting up reels, and they're just going to be uh, clips out of the uh, catapult your code career podcast mm-hmm. that I'm launching at the beginning of next year, so like next week. Nice. Um, I actually have a contest up right now for the artwork. But on 99 Designs. But anyway, um, so it's just going to be clips and it's just going to be, hey, if you're doing this on your resume, blah, 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 right? Or, um, you know, so-and-so said that they kept getting interviews and they weren't getting uh, offers, right? And so we we did a mock interview and it turned out they were doing this one thing, right? So I can talk about that for 30 seconds. I can post it as a reel. So I'll just have my editor clip that, you know, and then... I'll just stick it on my phone and push it to Instagram, t- TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube as, mm-hmm. you know, as a short and just kind of make that go. And, you know, like the Instagram and TikTok, they want kind of the portrait phone orientation. I think YouTube shorts, they don't. Right. And so they'll just edit them to the right size and, mm-hmm you know, make it all good to go. And then I can just download it to my phone and then push it up. Cause I think Facebook reels and Instagram reels, you have to do from a mobile device, a phone or a tablet. Yeah. That's funny. I, I had that experience recently with someone taking a, a group picture and uh, you know, it's just the, the silly thing of like, well, just, you know, turn the phone to landscape mode. And they're like, well, no, because it wouldn't look as good on Instagram or, or whatever. So we yeah. have to fit into the horizontal or the vertical frame rather. So Oh, that yep. was funny. Yeah, I've done plenty of cleanup that way. I've also, I use Canva pretty heavily. Right. Um, and by I, I mean my team uses Canva pretty heavily. Mm-hmm. So they, you know, all of the, like with the pop album art and the host picture and stuff, that, that all goes into a template in Canva and then they post it. And so Canva will resize stuff to the right size for you, oh, for the good. images. And that's pretty nice. And you can add text and all the fun stuff to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've heard a lot about that, but I haven't, um, I haven't tried it before. Um, I think they have a free tier, so you might be able to get in and try it without having to pay for it. Need to start making some banners or flyers or something like that. Do you remember way back in the day where like, um, not just uh, sort of the nostalgia for like coding up your HTML, you know, web page or whatever, but also just everyone kind of sucked at designs. Uh, so mm-hmm. it's like, it was, it was, um, very democratic in the way that you could knock something up and like paint or whatever. And, right. um, you know, since everybody was kind of on the same level, feel the same way about video games too. But, uh, um, you know, I kind of, I kind of miss that because people do get really hyper specifically good at, you know, Instagram stuff or, mm-hmm. or you know, all this kind of stuff. And it's like, man, anything I'm going to make, it's just going to look terrible in comparison, but... Um, yeah. Well, uh, and that's... I don't know. I mean, some of the stuff I wind up doing myself and some of the stuff I hand off to somebody else, right? Yeah. And it just depends on what level you want to operate at. But yeah, um, I see people and they post this amazing looking stuff to Instagram and I'm pretty sure they cleaned it up on their own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we can, but, you know, we can bring that full circle back to code too. I, I run into that problem a lot where, um, you know, you mentioned imposter syndrome when you're talking about something before um, that and just generally just having like, mm-hmm. uh, it's like, man, this guy is so much 
better than me at this. And my friend is so much better than me at that. And it's sort of like this negative inertia where you just never get started because yeah. um, you sort of like sabotage yourself. Um, of course, I never learned the lesson, which is basically like if you don't do it and learn and ask questions, you're always going to everything you do yeah. is going to be exactly like that. It's like, of course, you're not as good at, at coding as the person who's been doing it for 20 years. You know, that's it's experience yeah. based and it's pattern recognition. Um, but I still know it's I, so true. Yeah. So true. And I tell people to start ugly all the time. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, uh, in terms of stuff I'd like to try in, in the near future, um, besides going back to update that that little music gem that I made, um, I recently saw, and I'm sure you've heard of it, I, it's probably been around for a long time, but I don't get that much coding news. Um, have you ever tried or, or seen uh, F-sharp? which is mm -hmm. uh, functional running in, in like .NET. Yep. Um, never use .NET at work or at home or anything like that. But I was looking at F-sharp and I thought that looked kind of fun to, to yeah. try to mess around with. Yeah, it's it's some cool stuff. I, I haven't done a ton with it. Um, my experience mostly comes down to, so pre-COVID, Microsoft was putting on in-person conferences, big ones. Mm -hmm. Right. They had Microsoft Build, Microsoft Ignite, Microsoft Connect. And um, I got to be friends with uh, the guys that were organizing the, um, hey, we're going to bring podcasters out to interview people. Nice. And so um, I got exposed to a whole bunch of the Microsoft ecosystem. It It's cool looking stuff for sure. Um, it's definitely not anywhere on my to do or to learn list where I'm right. ever going to get to it. Mm -hmm. But yeah. Uh, that and and what else, what's the other thing they have? It's like .NET Maui where you can you can mm -hmm. multi deploy to like iOS, Android, yep. Windows. Um, I guess there's no Windows Phone anymore, but uh. <laughs> yeah, it it came a lot of that came out of Xamarin. They acquired okay. Xamarin. Oh, and right. Xamarin had all of it. that running on Mono, mm -hmm. and Mono was also maintained by Xamarin. And so when Microsoft acquired Xamarin, they they basically made Mono like they they merged it with .NET Core and open sourced the whole thing. Nice. So, they seems so like they've yeah. made some some cool decisions in the last what, like 5 years or so Microsoft in terms of yeah, kind of charting so, a direction, getting into open source, that kind of thing. Yeah, they hired uh Satya Nadella as mm -hmm. the CEO and he pushed through a whole bunch of open source initiatives. And it's it's been really cool, and I think I think Microsoft has benefited greatly from it as well. Mm -hmm. And for them, that's more of like a community building kind of thing, mm -hmm. right? Because uh, whatever money yeah. they're spending on doing that development is just to bring just to uh, get people to positively associate with with Microsoft, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah, and that that was one of the big strides that they made was that a lot of people were kind of turned off by the uh, Windows only, closed source. Mm -hmm. do it our way or no way um, type of work. And a lot of, so in a past life, like 20 years ago, I worked for Brigham Young University. I worked in their operations center and then as a sysadmin while I was finishing my degree there. Mm -hmm. And they, yeah, you know, a lot of the stuff that they had there, they were just kind of locked into Windows for whatever services they were running on it. And yeah, it was expensive and it was painful 
And so they alleviated a lot of that and also allowed a lot of it to move to Linux and stuff, right? And still be mm-hmm. .NET. Um, and then just having that compatibility with Active Directory and Windows saved that, you know, I think it brought a lot of people back to Windows because it was, hey, there's pain here, but I have options, right? They're, they're not trying to lock me into this. Exactly, yeah. And if you can work on that while maintaining, you know, your your Linux chops or whatever, if you're working in systems and that kind of thing, then even if you yeah. don't necessarily want to work with Microsoft products, you can you can at least, you know, do both as opposed to, you know, I can only do Microsoft right. at work or whatever. But um, yeah, I'll be honest, I, um, I really love coding uh, and stuff like that, but I've just, I, f- I feel almost like... Um, that was like a happy accident because I'm actually pretty computer illiterate um, in terms mm-hmm. of like IT stuff. I, you know, even at work, it's like, I'm the guy who's like, oh, it's this, you know, this button doesn't work or whatever, you know, um, or I can't get this setting to change or that kind of stuff because uh, right. I, sometimes I feel, um, you know, like a meme almost because I know so, so little about, um, operating systems and that kind of stuff where it's just like that should just work for me so i can write code as opposed to you know learning the whole system top to bottom yeah so i have one other area that i'd like to discuss with you and i think we're going to move into picks and this is also just talking about kind of the directions that people that the technologies go in and you know adoption and things like that because microsoft did that fairly well um, I worry that Ruby isn't doing this in some areas that I think are growing and changing. And I worry that, I, I don't know where that leaves us, right? So mm-hmm. one of them is data science. And then related to that are like AI, uh, blockchain, machine learning. Um, there's one other area I was looking at. Um, I think IoT has kind of dropped off its radar. And I think IoT is going to be another big area. And so I'm wondering, you know, where where do we go from here as far as that stuff goes? Like, I found, just doing a quick Google search right now, I found this data science with Ruby. But basically what it is, is it's it's got bridges into, like, Python and stuff so that you can, yeah. you can run your crap, write your stuff in Ruby and then run it, you Ruby know, Python in libraries. Python. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't... I don't know. I mean, I feel like this is one area, you know, everybody got really wrapped up around concurrency for a while. And I think that Mm -hmm. was an important step forward to, you know, build in some allowance for that. But, uh, you know, I want to see Ruby move into the uh, machine learning and, you know, data science areas in particular. Um, Yeah. You know, maybe blockchain is another one that's kind of math heavy. And so a lot of people do that in Python as, as well. And it seems like, at least from my experience, and um, so, you know, I, I got my first job in Ruby and, and with Rails um, in uh, 2011. And so it really hasn't been, you know, that long. I mean, you know, Ruby was really on the, and Rails was really on the upswing then. Um, but to me, it always seems like it's been very much community driven. And there were a lot of big personalities that also happened to be like really good at starting projects, generating, you know, an audience, getting people involved and that kind of thing. Um, 
And then, you know, maybe these days, a lot of those people now having moved further in their careers or having other interests and stuff like that, of course, you know, there's always people uh, trying to do stuff, but um, uh, maybe it would be a good idea for um, the core group to kind of like create these initiatives then, because yeah, as much as maybe it's not fair um, and maybe you might disagree, I feel like programming, especially like modern stuff is very um, not fad, but trend driven mm-hmm. and, and having like a really nice, um, data science library for Ruby that could compete with, with, uh, you know, um, MATLAB or whatever right. it is in Python, uh, would be a huge boon to the community. But unless you have like that champion, um, from just the community at large, right. it would almost be nice for, um, now, I forget is uh is Heroku still kind of like um I don't know involved with the core team of uh Ruby yeah. development. Yeah, I, I think Matt to... still works for Heroku slash Salesforce. It, it would and that might be a path forward, you know, just just be like these are a couple initiatives, it's gonna bring in a lot of support. And then once you get those people into the community, then they can help with with open source, but yeah, man, especially seeing how the internet, uh, I was about to use a phrase that I, um, you know, you, you use buzzwords and it, and it, it bothers me when I do it, but it made the internet blow up with, uh, you know, the chat bots, the latest, like, uh, yeah, the GPT chat GPT. Yeah. I mean, people love that. And, and of course that would be a great draw if you had, um, a library that, you know, even if it was, uh, through extensions to see or whatever, you could, you could add that to your Ruby projects. That would be I think a big draw and, and something really cool to play with, but yeah, without the big, without the, you know, the big community sort of like, um, uh, driving, uh, personalities, it, it maybe is a little harder to get those things off the ground than it, than it might've been five or 10, 10 years ago. Yeah. But yeah, I haven't tried it, but apparently the, you know, some of those programs can, can write code for you, which, um, I've, I've seen screenshots. You never know if screenshots are, but apparently one of these things can like, you can tell it what you generally want to build and it can like make it and then talk you through what each part does or something like that, which, uh, sounds pretty cool to, to at least to play with or whatever. But, um, you know, I don't know, um, in terms of of what that means for the future of ML or programming jobs or whatever. I don't know. Cool. Yeah. I just, you know, with Heroku, that was another thing. I, I just had to log in cause I had a, I have the, I'm using the Ruby, Ruby central CFP app mm. for the online conferences. And I got on and realized that it was down Oh, and they, uh, it looks like they deleted my database because they got rid of the free plan for the database. Oh no! And so, well, that's the best um, strategy, right? Uh, just nuke it, nuke them all. Um, well, I logged in and there was a big warning flag on there, so it's probably been that way for a little while. But oh uh, yeah, um, I'm kind of tempted to just move it off onto a DigitalOcean setup and. Yeah, I know I they have to worry about it. they work with a lot of languages, but I've loved using Heroku um, when I have in the past. Whether just yeah, it's it's definitely super easy. So um, I mentioned that like stuff, you know, the more computery side of stuff. I mean, I've set up 
web servers running just like on um, EC2 or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, but it's always like pulling teeth for me, you know, getting the like um, Nginx set up and then making sure the, you know, data, everything's running properly and talking to each other and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, I did, I even got to use Heroku um, like work-wise once, which was great because, you know, the money to pay for um, more dinos and stuff like that was part of the the expenditures. And, and uh, it was really nice to use that because you could just like pop in, see, oh, is there anything wrong? Oh, we got to spin a couple extra dinos up or, or database connections or whatever. Um, really nice service. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing that I've really liked with uh, what I've done on them. I mean, they used to be free <laughs> to a certain degree, <laughs> a certain extent, but um, it's nice because I don't have to go fuss with all the ops stuff, right? It just mostly yeah. runs. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, anyway. definitely, definitely not much of a, a DevOps person. Once again, I know I could learn it. I would have to sit down and yeah. like be astute and learn the stuff that I don't know. Um, but of course, it's much easier to just say, oh, no, I, I don't understand that or whatever. Yeah, there's do a that. lot of <laughs> that. So I got my start in my technology career working in a data center. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I had to learn how to SSH into the machines and you know, work on the command lines and some of them were using bash and some were using fish and some were using K shell and Z shell. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, I'm fairly proficient with a lot of the command line tools and with the, um, with a lot of the ops and DevOps stuff, just by nature of doing that and then being a sysadmin, yeah. um, you know, in various capacities. Yeah. And so it's not something that I've ever shied away from, but I will tell you that it is something that has always served me well moving from job to job because I can easily navigate through and set up whatever it is that we need. Right. Right. I, and in a lot of the places I worked, I wasn't the ops guy, right? I wasn't setting up the production servers and stuff, mm-hmm. but if we needed a CI CD server, I could throw together a Jenkins server that lived in our office pretty easily and i could you know i could set up a staging environment pretty easily you know i have to say i've neglected some of the kubernetes and stuff like that at this point but that's something that i plan on learning and teaching in top end devs and you know those are things that if you if you have those skills they will they will enable you to do all kinds of things for the projects you're working on whether they're personal or not and if you can do those things, you become infinitely more valuable to the team because you mm-hmm. can explain to them what's going on and you can create resources for them that they can't create themselves. Yeah, very good points all around. Yeah, and become like one of the people that, one of the yeah. people that other people go to to get problems solved and that kind of thing. Um, right. I, the, other, the other areas like this that you can go into, because if, if ops isn't your thing, don't do it, right? But you should do something. So it could be, you know, Visual Studio Code, inside, outside, backward, forward, and sideways, right? Mm -hmm. And so you can help somebody get it set up and run the way you want. Maybe you don't want to learn Kubernetes, but you can get your head around a Docker Compose file and set up local running. Or, you know, you get to the point where you know PostgreSQL better than anybody on the planet. You know, just those kinds of things, because then it's, I'm trying to do this thing and I just can't figure it out. Oh, well, your database does it. Here's how you put it together. 
right? Mm-hmm. And so, anyway, that that <laughs> I'll give advice all day, but <laughs> sure, yeah, no, I mean it's yeah. good advice, especially for people who are you know in the um, career hunt or, or thinking about mm-hmm. um, stuff in the future, yeah. uh, what they want to do you know, in a year or two years or five years or whatever. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's very solid advice. Yep. All right. Well, we've been talking for over an hour, so I'm going to go ahead and uh, roll us out. I got some, I got a guy at work that wants to chat at one thirty. So. Okay. Yeah, sure. Up. But yeah, mm-hmm. it was a good deal. Um, one thing that we added to the shows, or at least the shows that I'm on. Mm-hmm. Um, so adventures in angular uh, Lucas wanted to, I was doing self-promo with some of my picks and he was like, can I do that too? And he's like, why don't we make it a segment? So that's what we did. So we just, you know, hey, here's what we're working on. Here's what I'm working on, right? So um, topendevs.com. Um, we're still doing the book club. Um, Bob Martin's been coming to those. So if you are you like Uncle Bob, you want to hear from him about clean architecture, we're doing that through June, Jan, the end of January and then we're going to move into some other book. I'm still figuring that out. Um, the one that I got requests for from all the other folks that have been doing the book club call is the domain driven design by Eric Evans. And so we might do that. I haven't been able to get a hold of Eric, so I don't know if he will be on those calls, but we can still read them and talk about them. Nice. Um, and the only reason I hesitate there is because it's another architecture book and I, I might want to space it out. So we'll see. Um, but, you know, we might do something else. Well, we'll yeah. The other one that I'm kind of leaning toward, and I know Bruce, and so he might be willing to come do it, is Seven Languages in Seven Weeks. And I think that would be fun. And so we just talk through, you know, we do the different languages every week. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we'll see. Uh, and then um, I'm putting together the meetups for next month. Um, and then I was also putting together a careers uh, virtual conference for next month. But I think I'm going to slide that back because the CFP thing isn't working and I don't have all my speakers lined up. I was going to go in and start picking them. And I was like, this sucker's down and no one told yeah. me. So um, anyway, but yeah, that's that's the stuff I've got going on. And uh, yeah, um, the other thing is, is if you want to get my resume, you can go to topendevs.com slash resume and it'll email you a copy and then send you a couple of emails that explain pieces of it. Um and then I'm going to be getting my, like I said, catapulting your code career uh, podcast and course up over the course of the next few weeks. So keep an eye out for that. Nice. What are you working on, Zach? What should people know about that you're working on? Um, oh, before that, I just wanted to comment. It sounds like you have, I mean, this this whole operation is so slick. Uh, it sounds like you're just constantly, you know, on it. It, it keeps me busy. That's for dang Kudos sure. Kudos to you. Yeah. I, can't, I feel I like I'm helping people. Probably... That's what matters. Well, yeah. Yeah, that's good. I imagine you're probably working more than the usual 40 per week uh, with all the stuff you have going on. Yeah. I mean, some of that's just down to I've got this contract that I've been working um, to to make up since I just launched the products a month ago. And so, um, yeah, but I'm hoping to get to the point where I can just work on the stuff that's going to help people get the career and lifestyle they want and not have to go, you know, hawk hours for money well yeah i i had a guy who um i worked with uh, some years ago and um that was his whole big thing he's like as long as you're just trading your time for money um you know some people are fine doing that but mm-hmm. uh otherwise you got to figure out some way to 
you know, move beyond that in terms of um, what you're doing on a day to day basis. But, yeah, that's that's sound business advice. But for me, I have to be doing something that I firmly believe is doing good mm-hmm. in the world. And this is it for me. So well, honestly, yeah, I mean, with all the stuff that, that you guys offer, it really seems like you're doing it. So. Well, thanks. Um, yeah, I don't, I mean, besides my little personal projects, I, I was wondering if I could just, uh, I, I read through this book about once a year, um, uh-huh. and my son tore the cover off. So it just looks like pages. Um, but the book is called micro surfs. Have you ever read it? Mm-mm. Um, M I C R O S E R F S. Um, and, uh, it's by an author named Douglas Copeland. And since we were talking about Microsoft, um, I'm currently in the middle of my yearly read through. And uh, basically, like if you have nostalgia for the 90s or if you never experienced the 90s in terms of software and stuff like that, this book is a fictional book set, um, you know, amongst Microsoft employees in the 90s. Um, And it's jam packed full of references to how, you know, stuff of the time still talking about floppy disks and talking about, you know, that kind of stuff. (laughs) Um, The characters have conversations about what the internet's going to mean for everyone. And it gets like pretty metaphysical at some points, but highly recommend um, reading it. Uh, Microsurfs is the name of the book. It's been out for a really long time, but like I said, I go back and read it about once a year. I have like five books that I read and I just read them over and over again. So um, that's like the one sort of like technology tangential thing that, uh, that I'm doing right now besides, you know, my little hobby typing and stuff like that. Awesome. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, um, you've kind of veered us into picks, which is awesome. So I'll just throw out some picks myself. Sure. Um, so I'm going to pick, uh, I always pick a board game, nice. um, as one of my picks or a card game. Um, my daughter got a card game called um, Uno All Wilds. Okay. <laughs> so if you've played Uno, it's basically uh-huh. Uno, except every card is a wild, right? So you can never not play. Right. But, um, okay. It's, how do I put it? It, uh, they, they have like draw twos and stuff that are the wilds, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, so you can skip and reverse and draw two and all that stuff. Um, I'm looking it up on Board Game Geek because I always tell people what the um, the score is. So Uno All Wilds has a weight of one. So that's one out of five, meaning that it's pretty simple. Okay. Um, I don't think I've seen anything less than one. So, And that's a rating anyway. of complexity? Yeah, it's the complexity rating. So I've picked other games on here that are four plus, right? And it's oh. like, there's a lot going on in that game, right? And it's going to take you a while to play it. I mean, you those are fun games. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know, those those are super fun games, but those are the games you have to play through twice just to say, oh, the first time we played it, we did this wrong. And the second time we played it, we did this other thing wrong. Mm-hmm. So uh, Uno All Wilds. Um, I'm going to pick that as a board game. And then um, I'm trying to think what else I'm going to pick. So uh, I did join a group and this is for entrepreneurs and I'm looking at putting together an entrepreneurial. I I really want to do an entrepreneurial like code coders that do entrepreneurial stuff, right? Whether it's 
uh, courses or freelancing or running a SaaS business or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the, the group that I'm in that, that talks a lot about this stuff is called Total Life Freedom. Um, and it's run by a guy I've known for like eight years. His name's Vincent. And they just do calls like we do for top end devs where we have two calls every week for members and then the book club and the other meetups we do. Um, but and he's the one that I patterned my membership off of. But if you're looking at getting into um, into entrepreneurship, his group's awesome. And he also has a book. I have to just get him on one of the shows and just talk through his book. But uh, anyway, um, I'm going to pick Total Life Freedom as well because it's just it's been great. And I know he has room for more people to join over there. So anyway, I'm going to pick that. And then uh, the last pick that I have, I've been using DigitalOcean for a really long time. And I really like their setup. Um, I have to say that I ran things on their um, what app platform. And eventually it just turned out to be too much of a hassle. So I just moved it on to its own server. Mm. But their stuff is pretty easy to use. And so I'm going to pick DigitalOcean. Um, do you have anything else you want to pick, Zach? Besides uh, the book? Mentioned my book here. Um, what else have I been doing? Mostly just uh, life stuff, really, in the last couple of weeks and traveling yeah. a lot for the holidays and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, one thing I picked up recently, and it's really short, um, but a game I, I played on the Switch. And it's been out for a while now, but here I'll type it in um, to the thing. It, it's a game made by an indie developer um, called MacBat64, and it came out for PC, I think, uh, a, few, a number of years ago now. But uh, he also released it on Switch, and um, especially if uh, you like Banjo Kazooie or like that throwback kind of N64 collectathon uh-huh. gameplay. Uh, The whole game only takes like maybe an hour to play through. So it's perfect if you have no time at all. But it's just super cute and and really well done. Um, And uh, probably the game of the few that I've I've picked up this year that I could say like, I enjoyed that from beginning to end. And, you know, that doesn't happen all that often. So Uh, those two things. And uh, the other thing I've been doing recently... I found myself in a slump in terms of exercise. Normally I'm running more, but this has been, you know, cold and it's dark outside and stuff, which shout out to the winter solstice. We're on the the upswing now, but I've been trying to just go for more longer walks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And you could do that at night too. Less of a chance of getting hit by a car than if you run or bike at night or whatever. But, and the other thing I try to do is make it sort of like a little bit more meditative. So I don't bring you know, music or podcast or anything with me. It's just like, you know, the sounds of whatever you're, you're near and, and your own mm-hmm. thoughts and trying to do like 30 to 60 minutes uh, during the day, you know, uh, just to try to get some of that, that time away from like hunched over the keyboard and all that kind of stuff. So walking, I guess, would be my, uh, my third pick. Um, there you go. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I've been getting into some of that myself, but I'll talk about I'll do that in picks next week. I'll pick the stuff that I'm doing to train for uh, an Ironman. Oh, you're training for Ironman. Yeah. Oh, how's it going? All I right. mean, well? Yeah, I mean, I just got back into it, so I'm mostly tired and sore, but yeah, that's kind well, of the way it always starts. So, 
I see we're running up against the time. Well, best of luck with the training, man. I, I hope it goes well. Yep. Me too. But mostly I'm just trying not to get injured before I have to race. So. I hear that that's like one of the big things with the endurance yeah. stuff is just like trying to stay healthy before you actually yeah. get to the competition. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, we're going to have to wrap it up here because I'm at sure. a hard stop. But thanks yep. for coming, Zach. I really appreciate the opportunity. It's always fun. Um, and it was a great uh, conversation today. And um, happy to come back again in the future if you need to shoot the bull with someone. All right. Sounds good. All right. We'll thanks. Talk to you all later. Until next time, Max out.